Morning, everyone. We are back in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. And if you remember from two weeks ago in chapter 7, we had to end it early. Actually, we didn't end it early. I was running long. And so we didn't get to the last section of our uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 that I wanted to do. And as we start again, since it's been two weeks, let's go over our memory phrase that we have had about wisdom. And so let's all recite it together. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Oh, it was already up there for you to see. Oh. Well, as we go through this morning, especially this morning, we're going to see a wonderful, beautiful verse in chapter 7 that builds this really to a crescendo when it talks about why wisdom is so important and why correctly applying it gives us safety, great, great safety. But if you remember from two weeks ago, as we looked at chapter 7, which is unique in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7 and chapter 10 are a little bit different than the other 12 chapters. Chapter 7 presents itself much like the book of Proverbs, where there's a verse and a great meaning from that verse, and then it goes on to the next verse, and they're not necessarily connected or tied to each other, but they have um, a great connection to one another. And in the book of Proverbs, just like we have in chapter 7, these verses are divided into three types of verses. The first type of verse is a comparison verse, which is A versus B. The second type of verse is a warning verse. You better watch out for A. And the third thing is a consideration verse. Consider A. Consider this. And so we actually looked at the very first two sections. We looked at comparisons, and real quickly we looked at honor and wealth in verse 1A through verse 11, 12, Death and birth in 1b, mourning and feasting in verse 2, sorrow and laughter in verse 3 and 4, rebuke and praise in verse 5 and 6, patience and pride in verse 8. Showing the comparison of those, how they work together, how they complement one another, and how at times it is far better for sorrow to be present than laughter in a context of a life without God. This is all in the context of Solomon bringing us this wisdom about what it's like to live without God in your life. And Ecclesiastes proves the point that a life without God, even if you have incredible wealth, even if you have incredible health, even if you have 300 wives and 700 concubines, it doesn't matter. The world can be yours. All the power, all the fame, all the fortune, if you do not have God in your life as Lord and Savior, you end up dying with nothing for the afterlife because nothing but judgment will follow you. There's no forgiveness, there's no joy, there's no mercy, there's no tenderness, there's no love. There's nothing that has value in your life if God is not the one you worship with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The next section of verses we saw were warning verses from this chapter. We saw in verse 9, there's a warning about anger. Verse 10, there's a warning about the past, this idea of how good the past used to be, the good old days, how I wish things were the way they were 50 years ago. There's a warning about dwelling upon wanting the past to be present because you're not in the past. You're in the present, and God is the God of the present as well as the past and the future. But he has placed you here and now uniquely and on purpose. He did not make a mistake with the timing of when you were born and when you live. 
We also have a warning about uh, extremes, going on one side or the other, and also a warning about being oversensitive in verses 20 through 22. And so that brings us to that third section of verses from chapter 7, these verses about considering. And we started to talk about verse 13 and 14, consider God. So our mind should be set upon this principle that Solomon lays out in verse 13 and 14 about God. And we're going to take some time exploring this. In verse 13 of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. Consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man cannot find out anything that will be after him. Consider. Two things to consider in those, that, those two verses. The first thing to consider is the work of God, all of his works. And the second thing is to consider that God has made one day and the next. He has made a day of joyful, and he has made a day of adversity. He has made both. So first of all, we consider the works of God. What are the works of God? There's no way to answer that within a half an hour. Because everything that you see, touch, and experience, everything you feel, everything you notice is a work of God. Ultimately, his work culminated in his best product. You. You are the shining jewel of his handiwork. You are the human, the person, me, you. We are invaluably invested in by God, making us unique and special in all of creation. And yet he also has made all of creation. He has made everything you see, everything you touch, everything you experience. His hand is at play in making it. He either made it through speaking it into existence... Or he gave us the ability to take the materials that he made and made a nice cushiony chair for you to sit on through human inventions and abilities to take those properties and materials and make them into something. God is still the author of every atom and molecule in existence throughout the entirety of the universe. No matter how it's transformed or used, God made it. That is simply something to consider. Now, what does Solomon mean when he says, I want you to consider this? Well, he wants you to notice it. He wants you to not just look at the sunset or the sunrise or the moon and the stars and the clouds and the beautiful mountains. He doesn't want you just simply to recognize nature and say, oh, that's, that's awesome, God made that. He's made the simplicity of a blade of grass. And I don't know if you've ever just sat and wondered and looked at a leaf from a tree or a blade of grass or, or even a snowflake or, or um, it doesn't have to be anything even monumental. It can be a dead branch on the ground. And when you start to look in detail at its intricacy and how God has fashioned it and made it, there's a moment in which all of the biology and chemistry and all of the, the physical sciences that we appreciate and utilize from God's goodness 
there's a time where you just have to say, wow, that is amazing how you made a cell and it's able to function in the way you want it to function and multiply and create something far greater than itself. But God, you are the miracle maker of just the atom included the entire universe. He wants us to think about it, appreciate it, notice it, thank him for it, rely upon him for it, acknowledge him, not for the big things only, but even for those small things that you might see, the raindrop hitting your windshield. There is so much to thank God for in that raindrop hitting your window. And you might think, well, the whole point of that is to turn on the windshield wiper. Yeah, it is. Well, if you're driving anywhere around me, turn on that windshield wiper if it's raining. It's good for both of us. But the fact that that raindrop formed in the clouds, and who knows where that water evaporated. It could have evaporated halfway around the world and made its journey through the jet stream and formed a cloud right over the mountain that deposited that single raindrop, which God knew about when he created heavens and earth. He knew that raindrop was going to fall at that moment on that window and make that pattern and bring life to the water or bring life to the plants and the animals that that water touches. He brings that life. He designed that raindrop to accomplish all that he wanted it to accomplish, and it did. On top of that, it hit your windshield, which again, by God's grand design, allowed to be invented and designed and functional and saves you from getting wet. Then he gave man the ability to understand how from a tree you can get rubber that can get transformed into a windshield wiper. And then on top of that, you have to understand the mechanical nature of how that windshield wiper works by the click of a button. They now have cars that automatically turn on the windshield wipers when it's raining. That's amazing. I don't know exactly how they do it, but I, I'm, that's amazing. But from every aspect, when you start to think or consider every aspect that God has touched with that one single raindrop hitting your windshield, it becomes overwhelmingly beautiful to be amazed at God. And that's from a single raindrop. That's what Solomon means when he says, I need you to consider the works of God. I need you to be amazed at a raindrop hitting your windshield. I need you to think great and grand thoughts about me, God, when you see that raindrop. And no, it's not an inconvenience, and no, it's not by chance, it's by design that he allowed you to see and experience that mighty little raindrop, exposing the great works of God. How many of you have thought of a raindrop in that much detail about God? Be honest. We don't usually go around doing that, do we? It's always the mountains, always the sunset, sunrise, the clouds, a rainbow, big things. But when you start to apply wisdom to your life, the raindrops matter. In light of that, there are a few other things that come out of this idea of considering God because the second part of considering God in verse 14 is considering the fact that he makes those joyous days 
and the tough days. He creates both for our usefulness. One's not a mistake and one's not a present. They're both gifts of God, the tough days and the good days. Um, in uh, Matthew 26, verse 11, um, Jesus has an entire conversation about poverty. And we would look at poverty as a really bad, negative thing that's a drain on society that causes and creates all sorts of other cultural and social pro problems like crime and broken families and debt and stress and anxiety and suicide. And for a moment, just consider the fact that God being all-powerful, totally powerful, there is nothing outside of his limit and ability, he has designed for his reason and his reason alone, which is the most glory he's going to get, not to get rid of poverty in this world. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. That is his presence with his disciples. The poor you will always have with you. Why, why, why would God allow the poor to be with us? Why would he allow that? Why would he not want to solve that? From our perspective, it seems wrong. From our perspective, it seems God doesn't care. But from his perspective, he's looking at that poverty and saying, how are you going to interact with that poverty? How are you going to interact with what you might see as injustice in this world? How are you, as a believer in God, one saved by the redeeming grace of God and Jesus Christ, how are you going to take on that responsibility of caring for those in need? He wants to know what your role is going to look like in your life. He's giving you opportunity to serve and give and sacrifice and put others ahead of yourself. If there was no poverty, it'd be really hard to get things together like the care bags, those ministries of giving to others, helping others, serving others, loving on others. And I know I'm taking this in a very big, broad stroke. There are so many little, little things connected to this. It's really hard uh, to address every particular issue of it. But God himself has said that the poor will be here. Okay, so there's a reason for those days of adversities and those days of joy. He tells us this in Proverbs 22, too. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. The Lord made them both. God is communicating this to us through his word. It's truth. It's fact. It's reality. It's nothing to be upset about, embarrassed about, or try to justify. God says, I have made both, the rich and the poor, for their reasons, for their purposes, and in particular for how we serve and love and honor and give of ourselves and put them before ourselves. He's made both. Consider that. And then lastly, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, this last connection in verse 14 of, of, uh, of um, Ecclesiastes says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. See, there comes a point when you start considering God and considering his works, and considering what he's done and what he's put in place, and what he hasn't done that you think he should have done. There comes a point where we have to say, God has not made us 
all-knowing. God has not made you all-knowing. God has not given you the perfect mind to figure out everything there is to know about God. There are lots of things that we will never figure out. I don't like that. I like to figure it all out. I like to know it all. I, mean, I, think, I think if we're being honest, we all like to have that kind of I know it all knowledge. But when it comes to how God interacts in this world and shows us his works, God says, you need to consider this. I'm not going to tell you everything. Well, God, but I want to know everything. I'm not going to tell you everything. I'm not going to let you know why I made this this way, why I made this this way. I'm not going to tell you why this day is a joyous day and why this day is a day I made for adversity. I'm not going to let you in on all the background information. I'm going to simply tell you you need to trust and believe in me that I have made this world exactly the way I wanted it to. Sin has ruined it, but I am making it right again. And one day it will be destroyed and remade perfectly without any ability to fall back into the habits of sin. But everything that you see designed is the way God wants it designed. The problem is, is when we start to challenge that and we start to tell God, I have a better plan. I have a better idea. I think it's more fair if this is how this happens. When we start to get into that really bad spot of telling God what he should be doing with his creation, we usurp God at that point. And we tell him, in essence, we would be a better God than you would. From past experiences, trying to tell God he's not doing a good job and he needs to do it differently, trust me, you will not win that argument. You won't. I fought years against God. Years I fought him. Telling him what he did in my life was wrong. That the pain he caused was wrong. That my life was wrong because of him. Yet... It is a good place to be broken of that. It is a good place to be humbled before God and say, I acknowledge your sovereignty. I acknowledge your providence. I acknowledge your plans in my life. And I acknowledge your kingship in my life. As much as I would want to be king of my life, I would do a really terrible job at it. I would do terrible. Let God be God. And in doing so, when you see the works of God, no matter how small the raindrop or how big the universe, acknowledge his greatness in every experience he brings to mankind. Because he's doing it for one ultimate purpose, that he would be glorified in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And it's our responsibility to take those things and see God involved in it. You have a role and responsibility, not just simply to put up your hand and say, okay, I can't do anything, God's in charge, he's sovereign, I, I don't do anything now. No, you do have something to do. First and foremost, you need to consider God. That is an active capacity of thinking and dwelling upon it and meditating upon it and searching God's word and praying to him, Lord, how do I see your good in this? 
I have told you and I will tell this story until the end of time. My time, that is. A five-year-old boy loses his dad in a tragic car accident. And it spirals his life into years and years of drug and alcohol abuse. Wanting to die because I thought I was forsaken by God. And I stand as clearly today as the day that God brought faith into my life. I would not wish it any other way than for God to take my father at the age of five if I knew this is where I would end up. And I would gladly, without any hesitation, to give my life so that my kids would know and experience the forgiveness of God. My life is not worth their eternal life. So a tragic, horrible, mind-engraving day and moment, I hear those words, Tim, they found Dad. He died in an accident. As engraving as those words are, I can recognize every element of the hallway I was in, every smell I experienced that day, Everything surrounding me at that moment, I remember, and it's ingrained. It was terrifying, horrific experience. God made a day of adversity, and I can look back at that day, and considering him, how good it was. I could not have think of a more joyous way for God to bring me into his kingdom than through the events of my early childhood. I praise God for it. Can you praise God for every day of adversity in your life? You can if you are God's child. If you are one of his, you're going to go, yes, Tim, I remember that day I failed at this. I remember that day when I was hurt here. I remember that pain, that heartache, that sorrow, that tragedy in my life. But it drew me closer to you. I acknowledged your work in that. I acknowledged your goodness in that towards me. Thank you, Father. And when we come to a day of adversity, we can thank God for it. Doesn't mean it's not painful. We're not ignoring the fact that it's hard and a day of adversity. God calls it a day of adversity. It's hardship. It's painful. But when we can come out that other side or even in the moment of it and go, Lord, I don't understand it, which Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, you don't have to understand it, and I'm not going to explain it to you, but we can come out of that day and live in that day of adversity and still consider God's works. And consider he is the God of the day of adversity and the God of the day of joy. And both acknowledge him in both days and praise him and depend upon him. I guarantee you when you come to that realization that you can be at peace with that, you are starting to apply biblical knowledge in a wise way. And what that produces in you is exactly what takes place in verse 19 of Ecclesiastes. This is another consider verse. In verse 19 of Ecclesiastes 17, what comes out of a day of joy and a day of adversity when I consider God comes this. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Now, a city, by and large in this day and age, was a beautiful, safe place because it had walls, it had security, it had safety, it usually had a military and an army protecting it, and it had, from Solomon's perspective here, talking about wisdom, really wise people there. 
really smart people, people that were intelligent and, and were elders of the city. They had experiences, and they brought those experiences to bear on the everyday living and life of the city. So when you had rulers, by and large, it was designed to be a really good city, a good place to live, because otherwise, it was pretty much really wilderness everywhere. And where there is wilderness everywhere, there is outlaws everywhere. There is, there is rebellion everywhere. There is just, it's not safe. And so Solomon is saying it's a good thing to be in a city with 10 rulers. Wow, lots of safety, a lot of resources, a lot of good things going on for you. But better than that is one person who is wise. Wisdom gives strength to the wise men more than 10 who rule a city. Someone who considers God. Someone who knows about his works. Someone who knows about these comparisons and contrasts and these warnings. Someone who knows that and understands that. Solomon says, that person is far more valuable in your life than a city with ten very good functioning rulers. One person. One person with wisdom, correctly applied biblical knowledge is a safety net. It's a security. It's a strength. Well, it's a safety net. It's a security. It's a strength, especially from the physical attacks that you would have without God. A life without God you are going to be tossed to and fro. Everything's going to be important to you, and then everything's going to be valueless to you. Everything's going to be meaningful, and then everything's going to be whatever the opposite of non-meaningful is. I'm sure there's a special word for it. But you are going to be tossed to and fro. No safety, no security, and especially no hope at the time of death. But the wise, the one who acknowledges and considers God, the one who knows God appreciates him, loves him, is forgiven by him, trusts in him, believes his word is truth. That individual is strong. That individual is able to withstand and resist the temptations of sin and be able to stand on point as a leader for God's people. In, um, later on in the book of Proverbs, Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 14, it says, I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. When you have that counsel, that sound wisdom, insight, you have strength. And so the individual who gives themselves to all of these things that Solomon is talking about, understanding the true value of stuff, the true value of life, the true value of relationships, the true lasting value of power or beauty, really quickly acknowledges my strength does not come from any one of those things. My strength ultimately and only and thankfully resides in how strong Christ is. How strong is Christ in order to accomplish everything he's promised? How strong is he? Is he a little bit strong? Is he going to win 99% of the battles for you? Is he going to be there 99% of the time? If you had a friend that was there for you 99% of the time, they should win an award. Because there's no friend around your life or in your life that's going to be around 99% of the time. 
having your back, giving you everything you need, and winning every victory on your behalf. There won't be. But Jesus, as our strength, God as our strength and everything that he has communicated to us, there's no lack on his part. He does not lack anything. And we, it's so hard to believe that. It's so hard to understand that. It's so hard to comprehend that because we are weak and feeble and all of our relationships have at some point let us down. That's where wisdom kicks in. And I take God's word, I see it, I read it, I study it, I understand it, and I believe it. And if it's true that he is my all in all, that he is my alpha and omega, that he is my beginning and the end, if he is the king of kings and lord of lords, if he truly is holding everything in the palm of his hand, including my very soul, if it's true that he has victory over sin, death, and the devil, if it's true that he will raise us up on the last day, if it is true that he guards our heart, if it is true that we will be with him one day in paradise, if it is true that the dead will be raised, that's true. What can God not accomplish in your life? How can he fail at being your God? He cannot fail at being your God, your Lord, your Savior. He cannot fail at bringing you to that ultimate joy of living with him forever and ever and ever without the touch of sin. He will not fail you. We may not understand the journey and path that he takes us on. And he's promised, I'm not going to tell you everything about it. And we have to be okay with that and rejoice that he hides certain things from us. Because I imagine if we knew all the details, well, one, I think it's going to be marvelous when he does reveal that. But I think it, we get sidetracked and try to think of the mind of God before doing the work of God. And he wants us to be doers and workers of his word. And that's what it's implied in wisdom, correctly applying biblical knowledge, correctly applying it. But what makes applying God's word super hard? Because it's not an easy thing to do. It is hard to do it. And the reason why it is hard is because of sin. And we see that sin on display in the last parts of the verses that we're looking at this morning in Ecclesiastes 23, really through verse 8-1. 8-1 really should be in chapter 7, but it's divided and, and made into uh, uh, the first verse of chapter 8. But we're going to look at verse 23 through verse 29 at first and see how sin has a real way of deceiving and ensnaring us. And Solomon says it this way. And this I have tested by wisdom. I say, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep, and who can find out? So he's talking about this, this connection for wanting to be wise and living his life according to God's knowledge and truth, but at the same time, it just feels very hard to accomplish that. It feels afar off. 
It feels like he's not able to grab a hold of it. And then he shows us why that's the case. Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman's whose heart is snare and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand is found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So he looks at his experiences, and he says, everything is fine until I get to that point where I am faced with sin and temptation. And he puts it in the context of a woman who's basically crying out, follow me, follow me, Solomon. And for all of Solomon's goodness, he built the temple. And he wrote lots of scripture. And he was the wisest man that ever lived. And for all of those good things that Solomon had in his place, he had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. If there was ever someone that you could immediately point to and say, I know your weak spot, Solomon, it was a woman who walked by him and he looked too long and said, I want. And because he had incredible power, he took. And because he had incredible power, I think women were just throwing him, themselves at him. So he sees sin and temptation in this relationship of how a man should be, but how he is. And realizes that his actions of living the way he is is nothing but bondage, fetters and, and cuffs and, and, and restrictions and sin and falling to these schemes of sin. And Solomon acknowledges it. Is it a true confession on Solomon's part? I'm, I don't think that's the point of the chapter. I think the point of this particular, these particular verses is to show the subtle deceptiveness of sin. Even in a man who was wise beyond measure, who knew God's word and applied it in every area of his life, there still was this residual problem of sin that plagued him, that plagues all of us. You see, in Jeremiah chapter uh, 17, Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And what God is saying in that verse is he's saying that that, that part of you that is who you are is so touched by sin that you can't trust it. Even though your heart says, oh, I love that, it may not be the right thing to love. You say, oh, I hate that. Well, your heart may say you hate that, but it may not be the right thing to hate. It may be the thing you're supposed to love. See, your heart, left to itself, will lead you into what Solomon said are schemes. Who can understand it? Who can know it? Why that happens? Why it is so easy to fall to temptation? Why it is so easy for Solomon to amass 700 people he sleeps with? You think he'd be wise enough to know, don't do that. But he might say to us, aren't you wise enough to know to invest all your hope in money is wrong? 
To, to invest all your hope in a relationship is wrong? To vote all your happiness on whether or not you have the best job, it's wrong? So he could look at us and pick and point to all of our little schemes we fall to. We're so quick to judge Solomon. Oh, man, I can, that's... But the deceitfulness of sin is such that we are often all blind, blind to our own sin. It's amazing. Uh, not, not to pick on this, but... Uh, many, many years ago, in fact, like 150 years ago, I was reading a book. Okay. I was not reading a book 150 years ago. A book written 150 years ago, I was reading it. It was a biography, and this guy was writing letters back and forth, and he wrote a letter to a lady, and the lady was complaining that her husband was uh, smoking too many cigars, and the advice this guy gave was, um, maybe you should try a cigar and just sit in the back. Just yourself do one. And then he went into this long discussion for several pages about the benefit of smoking, how good it is for you, and how doctors across the country are advocating that everyone smoke. And there was a time where that was the case. They were really blind to the medical truth behind smoking. They really were. Just like 150 years ago, there was a great part of our nation that was blind to the evils of slavery. Yet at the moment, they were fine with it. We are often blind to the thing that we are most close to. Solomon saw that. He was disgusted with that connection to slavery of his own heart, to things he wanted to overcome but couldn't. He was wise enough, though, to acknowledge that and say, this is a troublesome spot for me. Another verse in Matthew 7, 5, which I believe is a beautiful verse that connects this. It's Jesus speaking hypocrite first. Get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Solomon laid bare the fact that he struggles, in particular, using women as an illustration for his life. I wonder how many times we point our finger at people like Solomon because it's easy to point out their sin, when at the same time, Jesus gives us clear instructions that we should be worried about our sin first and foremost. Because it's deceptive. We can often misinterpret how big of a problem it is in someone else's life compared to how big of a problem it is in our own life. Just words of God's instruction to keep us humble before each other and before him. The last verse that we're going to look at is Ecclesiastes 8.1, which fits into chapter 7. It's a proverb type of verse. It says, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I'm not sure Solomon exactly made this same connection, but I certainly did. And not just me alone, but sem several commentators made this exact same connection. And he was, I think, really onto something. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 34, Moses comes down from the Mount Sinai and goes in front of the people, and this is the second time he's come. He's got the tablets of the law, he's got God's instructions. And he comes down and starts talking to people about God. 
Now Moses had just met days with God up in the mountain. And when Moses came down, the first noticeable thing about Moses was what? His face. What was with his face? It was shining. It was bright. It was reflecting God's glory. And everyone was afraid. Everyone was scared. Everyone was like, Moses, hide your face. Because the presence of God in you is noticeable and it's convicting us. It's scary to us. Moses' close connection to God created, in that instance, this reflective glory of God. Our point, our connection to this verse, and Moses' example, is that same. A closeness to God should be noticeable. Not that our faces are going to shine or somehow we're going to float on air or anything like that, but there should be a common noticeable trait in a person who's walking near to God and a person who just is a Sunday morning, uh, twice a month kind of person. There should be a noticeable difference. And when you talk to them, and when they talk to you, there was one guy, and I've mentioned his name before, Armin Gesswine, who was the prayer warrior for Billy Graham for 40, 50 years. He prayed while Billy Graham was doing the crusade. He put together all the prayer services, all the prayer warriors. A week before he got to the city, Armin Gesswine was there praying, and he prayed every minute while Billy Graham was speaking. That man, more than any other man I've ever met in my entire life, when he walked into the room, people stopped and noticed. I don't know who that guy is, but there's something about him. This is a man who had dedicated 70 to 80, I think 80 years at that point, of his life to praying. That was his job. He sat and prayed eight hours a day. And when he spoke, were words that just soaked with God's presence. He was a man that you knew when he prayed, heavens were opened. And Armin would say that this isn't a gift that I have that you can't have. It's just I understand my God is so awesome that I have to be before him every day that I can, every moment I can, I want to be talking with him. That is correctly applying biblical knowledge. I'm going to ask the team to come up, and with that, I'm going to leave us with one question. And it's a personal question, and it's meant to be very personal. It's not meant to hurt you, but it's meant to bring you closer to God. So here's my question. Do people around you talking about you, not me, not the person next to you, but do people around you notice when you are close to God? Would they notice you are close to God? Would they notice you are God's children? Because from a wisdom perspective, it should be automatically noticeable that when we correctly apply biblical knowledge in our lives, God is noticeable in our lives. Let's stand and sing.